Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And of course, if you want to help us out a little more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today, it's just Phil and I, and we are here with our guest, Abdullah Shihapar. Abdullah, welcome back to the show. It's so great to have you on again. Thanks. It's great to be back. Abdullah, I think you're now officially a verified friend of the show, um, and you're a writer and researcher. Um, throughout the entire pandemic, your work has been really crucial. So I asked you on the show today in part because of your most recent op-ed for Business Insider, which was a really refreshing and deeply moving picture of the real cost that this pandemic has had for children. There's so much about this moment in the pandemic right now that is really uncertain. And I think it's really well encapsulated in the way that we are kind of collectively trying to struggle over a way to talk about child welfare and COVID. So I wanted to talk about this piece and talk about some of the ways that we've treated children these past months. You know, children are in general a group of people that we like to pretend that we as a society work very hard to protect. But I think the pandemic really shows how our collective care towards children is really conditional on a lot of factors. And after we talked about that piece, I was hoping that we could break out into talking about the pandemic as a whole and sort of take stock of where we're at and try and make some sense of what's going on. So to start us off, Abdullah, would you walk us through the sort of 10,000 foot view of what this piece is, what it's about and why you wrote it? Yeah. So I, it's just been a lot of talk about children's mental health throughout the entire pandemic. Um, and so the, like, if we go back, the first iteration of this was children are stuck at home. They're doing remote learning and, you know, there are, and there, there are, you know, genuine concerns about remote learning in the sense that, you know, some parents and children may not have access to the internet. And, you know, like, uh, uh, let's be honest, like Zoom is not as great of a platform for interaction as as it is for regular interaction, right? Like, I think we can all agree on that. But there was such <laughs> yeah. a focus on, <laughs> there was such a focus on how this, this just like kids need to be back in school. They need to be back in school, in school buildings without any real care for how that would be done. And so rather than in, like investing in productive like conversations and solutions about how do we control the pandemic to get uh, children back in schools, it became, well, it doesn't matter what happens with the pandemic. We just need kids back in schools because kids are low risk. And it was, it was first like kids are low risk. And then it was like, well, kids don't get in, kids don't get infected with the virus. Kids don't spread the virus. Then it's like kids are low risk. Then it's like, oh, well, you know, um, not all kids are dying, just the kids with, with disabilities, um, you know, the bad kids. Um, the ones we don't care about. Yeah, yeah. they're not. They're not economically valuable children, so they don't count. They're not going to be producers. They're they're not going <laughs> on to start Fortune 500 companies anyway. So mm-hmm. and then it's like never mind that you know in America, especially with the sh- shitty healthcare system, a lot of people who you know would classify as being high risk aren't don't actually know they're high risk because they are they don't have a, like a formal diagnosis. Um, and so then, you know, okay, kids, like in some parts of the country got back into school, in some parts they didn't. 
And then it's like, like, okay, we got to address learning loss. Like so many kids are like behind in schools uh, or like behind in their like educational outcomes. This could become like the most generational like catastrophe in, uh, in like American history in terms of uh, people's education system. And I'm like, first of all, have you seen our education system? And that sort of, you know, caused, I, there's actually like, I think one of the most significant things in the American Rescue Plan package for schools that it's being used is there's like millions of dollars allocated for this, you know, obscure term called learning loss mm-hmm. yeah, in the, in the educational at, industry. I was just looking at a uh, local district plans in Wisconsin and like that is, that ends up being like the largest allocation um, in a lot of them. And it's, I mean, like there, it seems like there's different, different ways that people describe this. Like in, in one way, the way that I think it gets talked about in headlines is really just like the no child left behind version (laughs) of what K-12. I mean, look, you know, uh, kids are just instrumentalizable for, for any number of nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. Right. And like, I think the way that like the top line way that this gets like talked about is, is just like in these very, you know, terms that I think we all agree are, you know, a, a bad way of thinking about what schools do, which is just this very, very narrow definition of performance that was only developed to like ever undermine the existence of public schools in the first place. But mm. like leaving that aside, like there are a lot of other things that seem to go into this. And like, I, I don't know, I, I don't doubt that the pandemic had a an effect on children's like ability to learn. But there's so many other like precursors to kids' ability to learn, like their health, you know, all of these other things that just sort of gets binned into like a fairly narrow series of interventions. Yeah. And I think like, you know, like, and it's so funny because like a learning loss is actually quite contentious in the educational field, but then you have, you know, some public health people and economists just throwing it out like it's like a, like a phenomenon. And so, okay, like learning loss, whatever, um, which, you know, now that kids are all back in school, uh, school across the United States, that, that sort of fear has disappeared. No longer is it's like a generational thing. Now the generational challenge is the kids, they can't talk to each other because they're wearing masks. Um, we gotta, we gotta like unmask the, the children because it's that is now the generational like harm that will be done, right? They're just like shifting generational harm is this concept that they constantly use and then they sort of shift it. I actually agree that there is, you know, potential for generational harm here, but not for the reasons that they're saying. It's because there's a damn pandemic going on where one in five children, one in 500 children have died, have had lost a parent, right? And that when you lose a parent, like, you know, you lose routines, you lose income, you lose, like you might, some children in the U.S. have lost both parents. Mm-hmm. And if they're like, if, the, if they're, if like one of the siblings is like, you know, age 18, 19, 20, they have to drop out of school and take care of their siblings or do they have like, you know, additional family members who can, who can step in and take care of them. That's not always the case. And if they do, right. No one is like, Oh, well, you know, no one considers like, Oh, if I'm a kid in Wisconsin who my, my parents died and I have the only relatives I have live in California. Right. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden I have to like leave my friends, leave uh, like a routine that I grew up with, leave my ho- childhood home and 
go to California to my like nearest guardian. And that's a huge disruption of a child's life. There's also, you know, even if you don't lose your parents, like children have been evicted. Uh, in, In fact, families are at higher risk of eviction, right? Children and and people, parents have lost jobs and that sort of stress, you know, of losing a job also translates onto, to, uh, onto children. And also just like a lot of parents are also, you know, we talk a lot about the labor shortage, labor shortage. Some, a lot of parents, you know, that have lost their jobs, some of them are choosing not to go back to work because of childcare reasons, right? Because mm-hmm. they would, they want to take care of their children. So like, yeah, we, what we have is a fundamental childcare crisis and we have a fundamental child mental health crisis, but these aren't caused by not wearing, by wearing masks. These are caused by not wearing a mask. Like uh, to put it very, uh, very simply. Um, and so, yeah, we agree on the mental health crisis, but it's just like, one of our definitions has stayed consistent throughout this entire time because it's not asinine and stupid. And the other one that's playing like uh, playing cover for the status quo, you know, keeps uh, keeps changing. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's been this dearth of coverage of sort of human interest stories of people being impacted socially by things like mask mandates or um, school closures. You know, we've heard a lot from the perspective of wealthy white parents in particular to get these sort of human interest perspectives on school closures. And I think it's very telling that we have not actually seen a lot of coverage about um you know, what lives are like for children who are impacted right now, because when you start unpacking what's actually going on and the sort of massive scale, and also I think, um, you know, Abdul, as you write about in your piece, this is also like doled out disproportionately, right? This is um, a problem like any problem in the United States that has a disproportionate impact on like more vulnerable communities. So these are communities already that have less visibility in the media. So it's like, you know, not surprising that we're not hearing about it. But I think, you know, it's telling because if you stop and start thinking about, well, how do we mitigate the fact that there are a bunch of displaced children who have had their social lives, their stability, their access to food, their uh, shelter, their education, and their understanding of probably their own bodies and their own safety in the world, right? And what their country is supposed to do for them or what, you know, is supposed to happen in their life. All of these things have been disrupted. And it's a tremendous mental health toll to lose a parent, but to be losing a parent and then to have basically all of society turn around and gaslight you that it's time to get back to normal. You know, yeah. I, I really feel like it, it it's not just simple harm of erasure, ignoring, disinvesting. It's compounded. It's this um, active affect, too, of saying, you know, um, these children who have experienced a ton of trauma and displacement it's almost collectively the plan of getting back to normal um, negates, ignores, and minimizes the suffering that they and the trauma that they're experiencing every day. Yeah, for sure. And I think you know, it, like even to address that trauma, right? You have to you have to acknowledge that it's going on. That that's, right. that's not happening, right? And that's I think that's the the the. the, the I, I can't take these arguments on on like people who have con- consistently uh, pushed this like oh we need uh, I'm really concerned about the kids and their educational outcomes things seriously number one because they they help fester this sort of 
very toxic, um, like right wing movement in America in schools right now. And now we're like, now we're like, oh, you know, it's not all about race. Parents just have concerns. Like now it's not about children. Now it's not about children anymore. Now it's about parents. Right. Parents are like really concerned about their kids in schools. Like that's that's how they make that that sort of difference. But also like, you know, if you like, we had schools closed for an entire year. Right, like mm-hmm. entitled. Right. You could have been like, okay, the federal government, right, needs to like really put forward like a strong ventilation plan for each school and go in there and do like ventilation, ventilation, ventilation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, sure, some of them have said, yeah, we need ventilation. But there's a difference in this, in this, in how many times an op-ed is written about we need to take off masks, and how many times an op-ed is written saying we need a federal government program to you know upgrade all of our schools. Right? There's a disproportionate focus on one compared to the other. So, yeah, like they, these people are just arguing and like it's hard for me not to take them at bad faith, in bad faith. Right. Absolutely. And let, let's talk a little bit about some of the trauma that kids are experiencing, maybe to just make sure that we don't get accused of glossing over um, the the depression and PTSD, because I think one of the statistics that always um, is thrown out there in the context of these conversations is, oh, well, there are more children um, who are depressed and suicidal now because of lockdowns and social isolation, and that that's also the sort of leading driver of depression, I think it's a really one insidious way of framing it, but two, also incredibly disrespectful to the feelings of children and the very real symptoms of trauma and PTSD that they're experiencing. Yeah. I mean, like, it's a stressful, traumatic time. And like, I, apart from like all of the other reasons, like even if you have a stable home, even if you haven't lost parents, like even if your life hasn't been that disrupted, like everyone feels an inordinate burden of of the the pandemic, and that that, that is the that's because of the fact that the, that a pandemic exists, not because you know we're taking measures to 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 stop it or very minimal measures to stop it. Um, and so yeah, like I agree, like it's just it it, it doesn't really it's always thrown out in the fact uh, these these arguments about depression and anxiety and and suicide they're always thrown out in the con like these these are topics that des- uh, of children's mental health that deserve like a long conversation on what specific on the causes of this stuff and how we can address it. Instead, like it's being sort of, you know, again, flatlined into this conversation about mm-hmm. how do we get rid of NPIs? And it's like, well, we, the problem is children's mental health, health solution is get rid of masks, which is like <laughs> stupid. <laughs> there's, no, there's no other word for that. Like, there are, like I, my intelligence honestly feels insulted when I see all these, when I see people with MD uh, behind their name make these sort of asinine arguments because I'm like, do you hear yourself? <laughs> I think the, the corollary, though, is I, I think that part of the way that schools sort of figure in the American imagination is that they're just these like, you know, uh, learning factories that just like pump. I mean, I guess that's not really the, just the American imagination. To some extent, that's actually how we kind of conceptualize them as as like institutions. But I think that one consequence of that is. I guess it doesn't surprise me when, you know, something like, oh, you know, the way to deal with mental health problems in schools is to like have kids remove masks because people don't really understand, one, the sort of pre-existing mental health issues that were sort of like lingering in schools. And two, 
what it's actually like when it comes to like receiving uh, treatment or any sort of help, you know, at, at the school setting because schools end up being like huge healthcare providers. Could you could you like talk a little bit about like from a public health perspective, like what that gap uh, sort of like looks like mm-hmm. and why, like why we should be probably attending to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And so like there is, so I, it's funny how in all of these conversations about schools, there's very little discussion about what actually goes on in the school itself. Like how, how equipped these schools are, how many schools have, you know, the ratio of, you know, staff to students and the, the sort of infrastructure conditions that these, that these children are learning in. And so, you know, these, the, the fact is, the question is, like, do these children, if they're exhibiting, you know, real mental health distress, like, what is the sort of, the sort of pathway for them? And for me, there, there are two pathways, right? There's, if, do they go to a well-resourced school where they can get sort of mental health support, where there is, like, in their, like, if they have a school, which not all schools have that, um, if they have a school, you know, ment- uh, medical facility, are they equipped to handle these these sort of challenges and handle them in an appropriate way, right? That doesn't necessarily compound on the harm by, uh, you know, like leading to, uh, you know, inst- like hospitalization, institutionalization, et cetera. Um, and then this, the other thing is like, then like a student, let's say a student is going through a mental health crisis on campus. Then there's the other sort of, this other sort of path which is the, the the school to prison pipeline, where mm-hmm. where the we, where the the sort of solution is, you know, schools. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing: like, I don't know how many schools in the in the United States have a nurse, but I can for sure tell you that most schools have a, res- a police officer, right? Or a school resource <laughs> yeah. officer, right? And so, like, the the fact is, like, the first quote unquote like mental, like the first sort of. I don't, I don't want to say professional, but the first sort of like person, this, this student who might be undergoing a mental health crisis comes across, or even like, you know, even if a student was to be like, hey, I'm expressing these thoughts, it wouldn't surprise me that an administrator would then also direct them to, to the school resource officer, to the police officer and send them through, uh, through, through that pipeline, like deeming them a threat. Um, and so I think that's the, that we we don't actually there's a, we don't actually talk about the sort of disparity in in healthcare that happens in American schools, and that's also just been like a like a general component of uh, of this discussion in general, right? It's like this huge discussion about public schools, and they almost always just sort of focus on the, the the needs of the most well resourced public schools in America. Um, which are housing like these leafy green suburbs um, and ignore the realities of, you know, the resources that most public schools have. Yeah. And I, I think ultimately, you know, the United States is very anti-child in practice. The amount of mental health like treatment actually available to children that is free of criminalization or the like possibility of being sort of exposed for whatever it is that they may be trying to talk to a provider about in private to their parents or other caregivers or school administrators you know children have no privacy and we we like to pretend that we try very hard you know to sort of 
protect children like i always like think of the um the simpsons line you know like won't somebody think of the children and it's just like a reverend's wife like you know clutching her pearls and grabbing her face and you know it it can sort of exist in this like abstract duality where they're both like always vulnerable and at risk of like mental health crisis but when kids are experiencing actual mental health crises we it completely invisibilized them. And um, the vast majority of children are put in these incredibly coercive situations where they really have no power. I mean, I cannot, I cannot at all even imagine what the average public school that I went to throughout, you know, growing up would do about a mental health crisis at the scale of COVID. Because, you know, the thing is, like, with all these arguments that, you know, the thing that was really the problem, this dubious claim we keep talking about, about the the real mental health crisis is schools being closed. You know, it's just to think of the the rhetorical lifts that we've had to do to get there, right? We've had to devalue the deaths of children that had pre-existing conditions to say those deaths don't count, right? We've had to completely erase the experience of children that have experienced trauma. Like, I don't think there's any way to argue that any of these moves that we've done are to protect children's health or towards trying to mitigate any of these things Um, And I think the way that we've been talking about people who are immune compromised and disabled in particular, especially when they're children, and the way that we've seen people say, you know, a, uh, a disabled child dying doesn't count because that is a, you know, it's a death pulled from the future. It's sort of preordained. They were vulnerable. You know, this is this is creating, I think, an, an entryway into understanding the sort of eugenic hierarchy of disability for children, too, at such a young age that I think it's, you know, it's impossible to even comprehend what trauma that could do and the ways that they are seeing their peers sort of devalued in front of their eyes. You know, imagine you're you're a child and your friend dies of covid and you're told by an adult that like, oh, no, like, you know, it doesn't really matter. Right. Because your friend was vulnerable, you know, like you shouldn't be scared because your friend was vulnerable. And I think the damage that that is going to do um socially to children and sociologically at like you know a more like structural level is is very real and i think something that absolutely no one is addressing right now or even paying attention to yeah and then there's also just like you know what if you're you're just no one is uh, in all these talks about isolation there's no one who talks about like the disabled child who has to stay indoors all the time mm-hmm. um and like not interact with their, with their with their with their friends one thing that really strikes me about and it's very like it's this is like the, the, the way American educational discussions go in general, um, but like American discussions about the resources in, in general as well. It, there's a lot of discussion of like kids, 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 but kid is really just a proxy for my child, right? Or my child who lives in this neighborhood, um, even though I don't believe that like these children are necessarily served by these interests. Uh, but there's there's a lot of you know use of the pool like children, 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 um and to push policies that in reality would would you know make thing that make situations a little more um or make situations a little more com- like advantageous to uh 
to a child in a, in a more well-resourced area, even at the expense of other children. And I should say that it's a perceived advantage, right? Because I think mm-hmm. there is a level of hubris here that is, I think, you know, I fundamentally cannot understand if I was a parent, like I wouldn't want to expose my child to COVID. There's a very real level of like hubris where it's like, oh, like, you know, this won't affect us, um, which I think is, is driving a lot of this. Um, and also just like, you know, I think in part also parents who like outsource childcare for much mm-hmm. of the the pandemic beforehand, and now you know have discovered the realities of childcare and how much of a challenge it is. And so, like that's just how educational these educational discussions go in, in general, right? It's like when it comes to like standardized testing or whatever, it's like anything that is I'm going to get the best advantage that I perceive to be advantageous to my child and push for broader societal systemic changes based on that, even if it is detrimental to the overall um, health and well-being of children in the United States and like in general. So like we could ha- be having a conversation about like how, which is why I think it's quite rather telling where the, why the, the discussion is like, we need to take off masks and we needed to, to um, like these sort of individual things because they're tangible and immediate rather than we need to, you know, invest in every school in the United States and improve ventilation. Well, yeah. I mean, it occurs to me that like the, like liberals to to a large extent have fallen into the like conservative trap of painting schools as really being reducible or like education policy being reducible to improving these very high level, um, you know, distillated learning outcomes that have very little bearing on what students' actual experience of most of their lives as uh, participants in a school community are like. I think of like schools, or school districts, like little governments that mm-hmm. uh, students like have to like trot into every day by law, um, and they are communities uh, ultimately. They're where most of activity happens for most kids most of the day, and. Like what's happened, I think, since the 80s is that they're just like if you really want those public institutions not to exist and if you want to break the back of labor unions like public sector unions, you have to get people to see schools as something else, something Mm -hmm. that's failing, something that there's like moral failure. But like liberals sort of fell into that trap and they're like, yes, we too care about student success as this sort of, um, you know, uh, abstract kind of outcome when in fact you know, the real focus in a way should have been and should be the fact that schools are these communities, but the way that they're failing is because we're under investing in them, like, you know, like uh, on on a massive scale in terms of their physical plant, uh, in terms of the staffing for like students needs, like, you know, uh, and, and especially given that all of the other systems of formal care fail children uh, Mm -hmm. in many ways, right? Like the fact that like when, like students, if they're presented with like a mental health intervention or something like in school, like it's far more likely to actually like be taken up because there's some consistency there. Unlike the rest of the world, you know, unlike the rest of these institutions that that sort of fail them kind of more routinely. So, I mean, that that to me seems like one big lesson from all of this in a way is just like that, like for for far too long, that's that image of schools has like been, you know, productive of this a very individualistic um like 
quantitative success, like oriented uh, approach, like comparing individual students and then schools. Yeah, no. And and I think also, Phil, I mean, that's a really great thing way to think about it, too, because there are sort of like public and private levels of access that children have to healthcare that are very different um, than the rest of the population. And I think the idea that there are these sort of multiple levels, whether it's at the family or the sort of idea that like, you know, even children through Medicaid or, or you know, any sort of welfare program, right? We think of these things as sort of being dedicated towards like getting resources towards children. And then you have the idea that in school, that is where even when the state fails the child, you know, the independent actor, the teacher, the administrator will sort of step up, um, go over their, their duty. And we tell all these stories for um, why we don't need to invest. I mean, these are all reasons not to invest in schools, right? It's like saying like, oh, that festering wound that's um on your foot like doesn't look like it's developing gangrene now so like why um why wash it out someone will come along and wash it out later right it's this kind of like perpetual moving of the goalposts and shifting responsibility around as if like there's always someone else who will um take up that responsibility or deliver that care and i think what ends up happening is that you know, the the experience that children have of care is both very fractured, but it also does not address their needs. It only sort of addresses um, the signs and symptoms of distress that worry adults, right? Like, we do not have um, healthcare that's, like, oriented towards the experience and the needs of children, right? It's all about mm -hmm. um, framing things as, in, in terms of, like, either certifying to the parent that the child is, like, back to healthy or, you know, dealing with the sort of... Uh, social role of like how parents are blamed for their children's illness and stuff like that. Yeah. 100%. And it's not like, it's not like the answer to this is easy, right? Because this is like an incredibly complex problem that's been made worse pretty much as long as it's existed as a problem. Right. But I think, you know, as a first step, which is something that you talk about in, in your op-ed Abdullah is like, we have to stop gaslighting children and we have yeah. to start being realistic about the pandemic we cannot keep this lie up this lie does so much damage yeah for sure um and i think you know one thing that really really fascinates me is this this sort of I, oftentimes i'll see on the internet like you know people who are complaining about masks and whatever they'll be like you know, when is the pandemic going to end? And then one person replied, oh, like, it's over, bro, in other places, just not in California, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, ah, I'm in Texas. It's not over here. Like, I think the, the like, there are a lot of people, like, not there, you can still see masks. There are still people, you know, kind of observing, kind of, uh, you know, like, the population is not as, I think there's, there's, there's this sort of, when that, when people say, oh, like, as a population, we have, you know, decided the pandemic is over. And I'm like, well, that's based on what you see, <laughs> like what you see on television. There's basically a lot of people also who are just like self-isolating at home because they, they're deathly afraid of this virus and the state has abandoned them. And I'd say like, in terms of like the perception of like, oh, the pandemic is over. Like what I get the sense is like, this is this mass cognitive dissonance. Like everyone knows shit isn't normal. Like everyone knows that like, this isn't like the pandemic isn't really over. Um, but there's just like this, there's just almost like this, 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 this refusal to, to really grasp its reality. 
And so like, that's, that's my, that's always just like my first inclination to, to respond to people who be like, the pandemic is, uh, is over because I'm like, A, like, I know I'm being gaslighted and B, like, like the people who say that, like, they know that's not true either. Like, I, like you can, you can tell that people like as much as they want to, you know, project this sort of sense of normalcy that everyone knows that things aren't normal. Everyone like Texas, for instance, is on track to have the most deaths in the U.S. surpassing California. Um, like more than 10,000 people have died since the summer. Um, and that's affecting like a lot of people. I can say like anecdotally in the summer when people took off their masks because CDC said it's, it's fine, most of the masks came off. But as hospitals started filling up here, people started like hearing about family and friends getting hospitalized. People started seeing how bad it was. And those mass rates, you know, they weren't perfect, but they went up because. And so I, I feel like in, in like red states, particularly in like cities in red states, you get this. Sort of, sorry, this is a tension. <laughs> you get this That's sort of totally phenomenon. Fine. You get this sort of phenomenon that I don't think is talked about in other places because I think that there's such a focus on these, these like with frustration in like sub suburbs and blue states that they're like, oh, you know, they don't trust health officials so they're not wearing masks and but they don't want to wear a mask and stuff. And then, but the opposite dynamic I think is happening here where it's like the state has banned mask mandates, has banned, you know, all of these things under the pretext of a public health emergency that some people are just never gonna like go back to normal and take them off because they fundamentally just do not trust the government to say this is over because they've demonstrated that they don't care. Right. No, I mean, and, you know, I, I think that's something also that was really evident in, in New York early on um, during the first wave when you had um, the WHO and, you know, the Trump administration being really kind of dismissive of masks as a mitigation strategy for the general public. There's a lot of talk of like potential rationing and needing to save PPE for healthcare workers. But there was like just as much, if not more talk of, um, you know, it's not really necessary or it won't really do anything. Uh, even the occasional, you know, absolute crackpot like, oh, it's going to make it worse or you're going to re, you know, the pandemic uh, line of you're going to reinfect yourself with your own coronavirus through breathing yeah. in your own air in the mask. You know, so it was like it was really interesting because all that rhetoric was, you know, everywhere you looked, um, the rhetoric was like masks are not not necessary unless you're in the hospital. But people were like picking it up because there was this gap between, you know, what was being said and what people trusted. But ultimately, the longer that goes on, you know, the fatigue and burnout inevitably sets in, you know, people are put under tremendous social pressure now. Um, there is nothing about the pandemic that is not um, stressful or um, upsetting or, or a lot of pressure. But the longer that we sort of try and pretend that we can achieve this visual normalcy by getting rid of masks, I think this is going to, you know, we're going to just have terrible outcomes. And that's ultimately what it is and um, what people are striving for. And I think why masks have been this um, real, you know, line in the sand is that it is a visual reminder that mm. is pretty inescapable yeah. that we're still in the pandemic. Yeah. And I think like, 
you know, I, 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 I have to constantly remind myself that like, that like when I post on Twitter, for instance, about the pandemic, like I, I viscerally feel, feel like, feel like a nag um, because like, you know, I like, I am not like, I don't like posting about the pandemic, it's depressing. And so when I, like, I, I get the sense, even though I know like this is going on, this is important, I do feel like I'm raining on people's parade and I, that I'm like, that I'm like a killjoy. Like I, I feel that like th- that pressure and I'm someone in public health uh, who, cause I'm like, ah, like the way it comes across to me is like, okay, I have to balance my shit posts with my pandemic posts so that I'm like, you know, I'm not too serious all this time um, because I'm like, because I, I, it, that's just, I think like, it's a stupid thing to, to, to think about like how annoying you're coming off as talking about the pandemic and despite knowing the fact that a pandemic is going on. But anyways, that's like a, that's like, like how it, how it like impacts me. The fact that I, I st- like just, even though thousand people are dying every day and uh, even though thousands of people are dying every day and it's still very much a concern that like, you know, you feel like just even talking about it is like that you're, that you're like, you know, you're, you're being like somehow like unreasonable. I mean, I think it's more, I think it's also, it's something like it's, it's like the social faux pas of it. Like when things are really bad at work and you go out for drinks with people, there's a, it's like, it's sometimes a faux pas to just continue talking about how bad things are. You know, people want to change the subject. I get that. I understand it, but it's like, it doesn't necessarily mean that things aren't still bad. Yeah. And I can feel like, I can also feel myself, because it's going on for so long and life is returning to like normal. It's also just like, it's, it's hard to sort of completely resist that pull. Like I can feel myself also like, you know, doing the sort of risk mitigation and risk calculation because everything else has kind of returned to normal with me. Right. It's like, is you can't like when society determines or like the government determines that everything is going to be open, like there's only a ex- certain extent to which most people, including disabled and immunocompromised people, can avoid, you know, not returning to like whatever was normal before, mm-hmm. right? Like you had like soon I'll have to like you know uh, probably fly across the country to return to some place and like even socially, right? Like I I feel like oh like you know it's been so long like uh, why not like go out and stuff like that, right? And it's just this it's like this. It, it really has a sort of like, I, so that's why I can get when like people are going out to like concerts and people are going out to this thing. I get why people are doing that because I, even I can sort of like feel that subtle pressure of like having to quote unquote return to normal. And the last thing I'll say is like, apart from like the personal pressure that like, that's just living in a society that's like returning to normal that you feel is all of this undermines the fact that we, this is like a mathematic event that's like akin to like the Great Depression and determ- like really needs like a massive like federal government response on the level of that, that, that crisis, right? Like the Great Depression brought new agencies, right? They created all these sorts of new agencies. They spent like trillions of dollars on um, tackling that problem in a very specific way, targeted way, and like in a way that like people knew, okay, this is to tar- target the Great Depression. This is to target the economic crisis. That's not happening for the pandemic. And in many ways it's not happening despite being necessary to combat it because it would go against that, that sense of false normalcy, right? Like if you right. admit the pandemic is a problem, 
then you know people can't quote unquote get back to their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, right, but I, yeah. I do think that that's actually what creates this pervasive, um, you know, sense that you can't talk about it or that you like it's you know somehow. Um, you know, not not something that you should discuss because there's this greater sense of like, okay, if you talk about it, then the na- naturally the next thing, you know, people are going to want to know is like, okay, what do we do? And as long as people feel politically, rel- relatively speaking, politically disempowered, unorganized, um, mm. and so on, like, it does sort of have a way of producing despair. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, I think that some level of despair can be politically productive because then it animates um, political action, but I I do think that's my that's my sense. But I think what happens though is then all of the negative experiences, and I just I see this like in my students and people I know, all of all of the uh, sense of dread, actual sort of like mental health burden, does really become individualized, and I think that that's far more dangerous. Like far 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 more dangerous um you know in the end yeah absolutely and and i think that's that's something that i've been thinking about so much recently which is that you know even more so than at the beginning of the pandemic where there was some sort of sense of you know like that it was like reasonable to have like some sort of collective hope for like solidarity that was still part of the messaging you know um There was the, I think, the broad misunderstanding for most of the population that this was going to be only a matter of weeks and then everything would go back to normal, like a really bad flu season kind of thing. And, you know, I I think as we've gone on, the the sort of pessimism and nihilism, which is absolutely understandable, has become, you know, almost as infectious as COVID and the pressure um, towards normality and the stigma that has been um, foisted on people um, who who are still posting about COVID, whether they are anxious about nagging or not, right? Like that 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 stigma is incredibly powerful and it's directional, right? And it it works in the direction of suppressing the sort of norm of accepting um, COVID speech or speech that's realistic about COVID, and that has a very real effect on what people then internalize as politically possible, right? It, it frames everything down to this sort of individual level of sort of what you can do for your own risk because there's, uh, you know, any sort of collective action is absolutely off the table. And I mean, that's an incredibly um, convenient perspective to sort of have people coming from if you are trying to do nothing about the pandemic. But like there, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there is a lot that we can do. There's a lot we could have done. And in the past, you know, I've been looking at other pandemics. I've been looking at smallpox, tuberculosis, and um, polio in the United States, just trying to understand, you know, where what what are some of the factors that are at play here that are dictating what the robustness of the response is going to be? Um, you know, during the tuberculosis epidemic, you had this huge growth in these networks of you know sanatoriums, which was not a walk in the park. But you had the idea that you know to keep the workforce safe, you had to remove sick people let them convalesce and heal sort of outside of the workplace, right? And there was sort of the pandemic hotel model. You know, during polio, you have this incredible deployment of a um, one of the most successful vaccination campaigns ever, right? And what are the reasons that, you know, stuff like 
you know, this is not happening during COVID. It's not, I think, all changes to the economy. I think it's also um, the fact that people do not see COVID as a threat to the labor force, right? Um, If COVID was sickening um, primarily people who were 20 years old, like if you think about the 1918 flu pandemic, that that age group skewed younger as well, right? So if we if if COVID was going after, let's say people who are two years out of college graduation or something, or it's attacking people who are in middle management in the workforce age wise, I think we would see a totally different response to the pandemic because the labor force would be threatened. But I think because because this this narrative of well the people who who are affected and really impacted by covid are people who you know in other contexts in society are fundamentally devalued right there is a um there's a lack of urgency there that is sort of baked into the whole thing and i think you know this is why i really appreciated your your piece abdullah because i think you did a very good job of even if you felt like a nag when you were doing it, you did a great job of reminding the reader, you know, that there is a huge missing perspective of what about immune compromised and disabled children that just is not being addressed. And that that is in and of itself, one of the biggest problems that I think is perpetuating um, the consent for doing nothing here. Yeah. One thing that like I always remind myself about why it's like important to talk about this is like is if the united if people specifically i think people on the left right if we accept this sort of level of death as normal um on top of other successive crises like i think like the cdc just released the preliminary overdose numbers um from april to uh 2020 to april 2021 it's about a hundred thousand people which is unprecedented like uh, to to think at the beginning of the decade it was about forty thousand, which is still horrible um it's like a like a massive increase and then you think about you know deaths from all sorts of preventable causes in 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 the u.s whether that be like you know poverty and child mortality, um, child mortality, maternal mortality, um, gun violence, like there's all of these, uh, these, these causes of deaths that, that we are dealing with right now. And then on top of that, you're going to, we are going to, like, we are entering, I think, uh, like an era of, you know, mass death and compounding crises because of climate change, right? Like the climate change poses this, this huge challenge. And so, resisting the urge to be like, well, this is, we can't do anything about this. This is, this, we just have to accept it. We just have to move on with our lives. Resisting that urge is really important because that urge will always be there for every specific crisis, right? There are always, for in, in every crisis, there are people who are affected and people who, you know, even for a momentary period of time who are uninfected or perceive themselves to be not affected. And so if we let that sort of nihilism creep in for this sort of crisis where nearly a million people have died officially, then, you know, what's just like, that's sort of the playbook that, that those in power can use to sort of desensitize the population to other causes of mass death. And so on the left, that's very important that we, because I, I, I also see some people on the left just like, you know, tacitly accept this. Um, 
And then for, for those of us in public health, it's also just like, you know, I can see the pattern with COVID now. You, it becomes this sort of disease where we bemoan the disparities, where we mm. bemoan the fact that we can't do anything about it. And then we spend like 30 years writing papers about eliminating disparities and, you know, making, tinkering around the edges of the system to make small little changes to like, I, I don't know, like Medicare or Medicaid policy that may like reduce the disparity by like 1%, um, as opposed to like, you know, using this opportunity to, to really like, you know, decrease the amount of death and cause like real structural overhaul. Um, so that's why, like, when I when I feel that sort of nag pressure, I, I try to remind myself that, like, this is this should be like the line in the sand because if we cross this line, and in many cases some we have, unfortunately, then you know what's next, what's to come. Right, right, yeah. I think it's a, such an important point, and and that the nihilism is really sort of self-propelling to you. I mean, we've been ta we've been talking about this a lot in the group chat already, and um, Phil and I just talking about you know how, like, how could you actually at this point in time, like, what would you need to do to build um, like an actual coalition for igniting some sort of response even this late in the game i think there is kind of the idea that like oh well it's like so much time has passed now that yeah. like why would we sort of bother doing anything this late in the game but if you walked into an emergency room and you said well my lower uh, right quadrant of my abdomen has been hurting for two weeks and the doctor said well so much time has passed now why would we even bother looking into why your abdomen hurts right like you would be really mad um and that would be medical neglect technically right so you know it's like i i can't totally wrap my head around why this idea of like oh so much time has passed like we don't need to do anything now there's nothing we can do now like i get it in the context of understanding the forces we are up against but i don't get it in a realistic sense about you know seeing the crisis that's in front of us and knowing very well how many simple easy and accessible public health interventions we could layer to reduce some of the death very easily and like one thing that was really stunning to me is i always like I, you, is this, you see this narrative sort of change, right, in terms of what they want you to get used to. And for a long time, it was like, COVID is going to be endemic, it's going to be a mild disease, whatever. Then the other day, I saw this stunning quote from a doctor at UCSF who has also kind of been part of this, uh, this, com this, com this sort of manufacturing consent complex. Um, and he's like, you know, we're just going to have to get used to this level of death for the next two years. And I'm like, that's like a, over a thousand deaths a day. That is, right. <laughs> that is under no circumstances like the flu. Um, that's an active pandemic for like another two years. And so the fact that they're just like, they're just throwing up their hands and being like, oh, you can't do anything about this. I'm like, you're in medicine, <laughs> you're in public health. And this is what you're choosing to say. I think for me, the, like the, like for me personally, when I think of like the, the sort of, terrain of struggle it's really intimidating to think about like you know how we can sort of change this systemically what mm -hmm. i personally try to focus on is like field like countering these voices in the field because they are incredibly influential and mm -hmm. as a result incredibly dangerous like they all like to act like they're disempowered like they they, they can't do anything about like the american public just you know 
just ignoring the pandemic, etc. Right? They all act like they have no agency, despite going because to cancel like, culture, of course. Yeah, and because like <laughs> they, they attend like you no, know, never mind the fact that they they hold huge positions at these prestigious universities. Never mind the fact that they have a billion degrees next to their name. Never mind the fact that they have access to television networks and this huge platform. Never mind all of that, right? Never mind that they could call the White House, right? They they <laughs> they are. They they choose to say things that sort of, for whatever reason, um, choose to say things that, you know, adjust the sort of the sort of expectations of the pandemic rather than saying this is horrible. This needs to change now. And what I will personally say is I the experts that I see pushing back on this are experts who are in areas where they can't avoid it. These are people in Texas, in Louisiana, right. in North Carolina, in the South where it's really, really, where it's been really bad. Whereas in places that have thankfully, you know, kept in mitigation measures, the complaint is, oh, too many masks. Right. But th- and that's, I think, to get back to this, like, broader question of, like, how you build a, a coalition on this is, like, one, you know, you actually have to start where there's the the greatest, like, grounds there. And it's, I think the thing is the, I think the, the, in a way, what we're what I'm complaining about, I think what we're in a way talking about is like many of the things that we think are important don't get lifted into like think pieces and like mm-hmm. the, the sort of the essaying class. And <laughs> I, I guess I never would have expected that to happen in a way. But like I do think as a function of that, we it, you know what when people tend to write about the, you know, early part of 2020, it's like. Well, you had not only do you have mass death, but you had all these other things and the sort of the memory of that is very negative and like anything that people can like grab onto that allows them to go back to some sort of like version of normal is is what they're going to do. And and they'll, you know, unwittingly become more risk acceptant. But I think the thing that is probably missed there is they're actually like workers organizing together were a huge reason why like more deaths did not happen, uh, you know, during the pandemic, like that, it actually could have as bad as it was. It in fact could have been worse if you didn't see that kind of like organizing in certain places. And I think that that is like the sort of memory of parts of the pandemic have been like purged. And I, and I think those are in part, some of the stories that aren't being told. And that, that might be why it's like cognitively so difficult to think about what a coalition looks like, because we rarely see Mm -hmm. or rarely shown Mm -hmm. uh, stories of those things, like when they're happening. And I I don't know if that, that resonates with you, Abdullah, but like, I do think that like, I don't know at at the local level, it's, you know, there, there are all these worries that by like talking too much about COVID, you, uh, you know, you like disintegrate potential coalitions. But I think, I don't know. I wonder if sort of looking back at that and telling some of those stories actually might might reverse the trajectory. Yeah, I think you know, I think that's an important point, and I think you know, the, I I try to grapple with this right now. Is like, it's like we are in this a very paradoxical time where you have like this, this groundswell of organizing, right. Um, in terms of, in terms of labor, about other things as well. And then you also have, you know, this, this debilitating pandemic and things going really, really badly. And so I think that's an important thing to tackle and mention because they're, they're clearly like the, the sort of potential and energy is there, but, 
there's, I don't know, like it, it feels like there's a disconnect on all sides on what needs to be done or like what is a problem necessarily. Like I feel like there are problems of the pandemic that aren't necessarily being like, that aren't necessarily, be, that are being like compartmentalized into these individual issues, which is, which I think, you know, is, is what it does is it kind of disconnects it from the broader context of the sort of mass death in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been thinking a lot about that piece that you also wrote recently for Teen Vogue about paid family leave um, relative to sort of this conversation about like, what do we, what do we do? What even could make a difference? And where could there be, you know, room or space for like, meaningful intervention, you know, and I think one of the things that is really important is that as much as we all might feel like we're imposing on people for talking about this stuff for continuing to COVID post or continuing to write about this, it's almost, you know, one of the most important things to do right now, because I think without having at least some alternative narrative, as small as it may be, trying to work through some of these, you know, things of like what, why it's happened, what's gone wrong, um, you know, how we even got to this point. Because I think a lot of people, because of the because of the really skewed perspective of the dominant media framing and the dominant political narrative of how this works and how change is going to work under the era of COVID, right? You know, a lot of people, um, I think, are understandably, like, uh, angry, scared, overwhelmed, a little bewildered. I think a lot of people don't understand how we've got here. And and from that perspective, like, I guess it, you know, it does make sense to sort of feel like there's nothing left to do except for give up, especially when things are framed so individualistically and you know and i think you know we've seen this top level messaging sort of solidify but we also know that it's like incredibly unstable and it's vulnerable to social influence and pressure i mean i'm just thinking about how that jg allen um was it a jg allen thing that no it was a david leonhardt thing not even a doctor just <laughs> just a new york times um newsletter the crazy dude. doctor david <laughs> yeah oh my gosh um what a mix up. Oh, well, but, you know, the, the David Leonhardt thing that Justin Feldman wrote about, about how the sort of casual statistic that's like thrown out by a, a newspaper newsletter writer sort of migrates into official government policy. And we've seen this happen, you know, where the sort of social is then. Um, it sort of breaches the membrane between, um, you know, what is culture and like what is governance, right? And and I mean, maybe I'm like naive and like overly optimistic that through like you know refusing to shut up that there is some small chance that um, with enough not shutting up, there there's like an ability to sort of recreate these like systems of like social pressure and social influence just through like making sure that there is a record. Um, an alternative record of like what's gone wrong, you know? Definitely, yeah. And I think what, what sort of helps, I, I, I agree with that. And so I think if I didn't, I, I wouldn't, I would just give up. Right. Um, <laughs> I think the, I think what's, what I've noticed and this, I, this is both like incredibly bad in the sense that there's a lot of death, but it's also good. It's like society, uh, or I should say those in power, I think have tried to even, tried to sell, you know, this sort of mass death as something that people should get used to, as something that 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 should be normal and should that, you know, 
that we can live with essentially this sort of level of method. I don't think they're doing that that successfully. I think that um, there is these there's this impact. There's, take the, the 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 Biden administration, right? There was this whole declaration of. The virus is done, like, you can take off your masks, whatever. And, you know, a good a good percentage of the sort of political frustrations, whether you're on the left or the right or whatever, is because, like, everyone knows this pandemic isn't over, right? There's right. still, right, like, if you're on the right, your tendency is to be like, you know... Uh, even though everything is lifted, let's get rid of every single thing. So, like, I don't want any. I want to make it illegal for people to wear masks, like, because I don't want to see it. <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. or and if you're on the left, um, you're you're like, okay, we need to actually tackle these things because you can't. You a thousand people dying a day of this disease is a lot, and there's only a degree to which you can ignore that. And I think that's why that I don't think the the Democrats necessarily, you know, thought about it too much. They, I think. In the summer, it was easier to kind of think like, oh, this pandemic will go away or, we, or it won't be that big of an influence, but it's like affecting everything. And to a degree, it's like it's impossible, even though we're told that it's not an issue we have to move on to a degree. Like, what I'm seeing is like it's, it's really impossible to ignore it completely. It always has these impacts, which is why it was funny when I read this like that Max Boot piece from the Washington Post about what Democrats should do. He's like, mm-hmm. the pandemic is still an issue. So get rid of masks and get rid of, so get rid of masks, get rid of uh, like all of these sort of precautions. Never mind that they're not Max in Boone, the country. trust me. Yeah. I knew what to do with the rock. I know what to do with the <laughs> Right? And so it's just like, I think that's one thing. It's like, it's both incredibly bad because the pandemic is still occurring. But I think it also lends hope to that sort of pushback because I think that I don't think the, the powerful are have control of the situation as they would like to have control of mm-hmm. it uh, because it's it's a virus, right? It's it's this it's it doesn't care. It's not a human enemy. It will you can't. It's not fair, and so it will like. There's only so much you can like meditate over it and pretend it's not going to exist. It has real impacts on the society, um, right. and there's only so much you can ignore that. That's such a good point. It's like you can't. You, like a virus you can't like buy out a virus or bribe a virus to behave and do what business wants you know so it's like the option instead is to try and like fool everyone into thinking then that what's happening is what's supposed to happen yeah. you know it's i mean it, it's it's classic if you think of just how what we've seen uh you know especially i think at, at a like hyper local level right and the sort of ways that um just sort of small I think small vocal groups are having a tremendous influence, right? Um, I'm thinking about, you know, at the school board level and all the other forces that are sort of tied up in um, what is driving these decisions and what are sort of the priorities that are at play. And I, I, I get how discouraging it must be, particularly for people who are trying to balance right now how to keep the kids in their school districts or schools safe and how, mm. you know, safe from the virus, but also like safe from this kind of um, attack on, you know, wanting to like make sure that no one is at all learning about race in school um, because, you know, CRT is demonizing white people or whatever um, or you know reverse racism or whatever bullshit you know keeping them safe from that from you know there were bomb threats at like schools recently in the past two weeks there's a lot for people who are in these positions to juggle 
And it's totally understandable that they're like not always going to make the right decisions about what to prioritize. But I think, you know, one of the things that is just really refreshing is being able to sit down and talk to you about, you know, like, uh, <laughs> let's like really talk about what's going on right now with children and depression and mental health, because it is not, it is absolutely um, not a conversation that you can find elsewhere. And that's really depressing to me. You know, I would absolutely way prefer to see a little bit less of Monica Gandhi and maybe, you know, instead like the Atlantic could interview a depressed child instead who's lost their parents. You know what I mean? Like, I think we need to mm. stop relying on these experts that are so absolutely removed yeah. and so so willing to try and do this this meaning production to shift the goalpost. But yeah. it's not going to get us anywhere except for more yeah. of the same. Yeah, for sure. And like, as someone who, who you know, who, who like contributes to some of these outlets and stuff, I will say like, there's a, like a marked difference between when I write about COVID in like the New York Times or, or like these places and when like someone like Monica Gandhi or like Vinay Prasad like write, right? Like mm-hmm. like mine my, my somehow becomes like a cool guest op-ed that they that they somehow pick. Um, and then the 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 sort of you know contrarian point of view like has that that sort of veneer of legitimacy um is it even contrarian at this point yeah uh, yeah like i mean i i i i always use contrarian as sort of a like a substitute oh yeah, yeah. Faith. quote unquote contrarian yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right yeah, yeah so um it's, yeah it's just like a, it's it's just, you know, yeah, I, I agree that we need to essentially, like, stop lending these people the sort of credibility that they deserve. But unfortunately, right, like, they still ha- have access to those, mm-hmm. to those platforms. Right. Um, and are like, it's really stunning because... I think it reflects the the sort of I think like there there are so many there are like a handful of experts that people go to and usually in an article it'll be like two in favor of being a little more relaxed versus mm-hmm. one versus one who isn't. So you might have you know people from UCSF and then you might have mm-hmm. like you know maybe Ellie Murray or like mm-hmm. Julia Raifman from Boston University who are like we need to we need to take we need to be a little more cautious here. Um, and so there, there's like a string of go-to experts, but like the the sort of ratio is always like two to one in terms of pushing for less caution. And a result, as a result, the people who are pushing for caution kind of look like, you know, like, again, like naggers, right? They look like people who are like a little out of touch, even though that's like, that's not the case at all. Yeah, no. I mean, and and I get it. Like, I think some people feel like they they want answers um, before they can move forward. And so the people who are offering like the sort of answers that seem like the most magically complete and tangibly satisfying are people, you know, like the Monica Gandhi's and, you know, the, the list goes on and on. J.G. Allen, you know, all of them. Um they they have really um, seductive answers, right? You know, and th- the answer of like, I like how like Miriam Kaba puts it about police and prison abolition, which is like, well, having to sort of produce an answer of like how you're going to fix it from the point that we are at right now, looking at the sort of landscape of COVID, right? That that really mm. is a trap because yeah, absolutely. That, that gets you into the like, well, is it feasible? You know, mm. is it reasonable? Will it pass a CBO score? You know, how are you going to get that <laughs> through Congress? Yeah. yeah. And it's like, no, I don't, I don't give a fuck, you know, to quote 
Kaba, we will figure it out. We're like, we're going to figure it out as we go. And like, fuck off, you know, like fuck off with the CBO, fuck off with feasibility. Like it is not feasible to expose a bunch of people to a novel virus that we don't know what is going to do to them. You know, COVID has killed hundreds of children. It has infected thousands more. Um, We have no idea what long COVID is going to do long term, especially in children. You know, as someone with a post-viral autoimmune condition myself, these conditions can be some of the most stigmatized, undertreated, and um, neglected conditions. I mean, I'm just thinking of the battle that the ME-CFS community has been engaged in for over a decade trying to roll back, you know, really dangerous mandated graded exercise therapy in the UK, which like, you know, they updated those nice guidelines and now it's like illegal, but there's no way to report providers who aren't following the new guidelines and who are prescribing it anyways. You know, there's all these other horrific layers that come, you know, with trying to navigate having a, um, an autoimmune disease that is a post-viral disease, especially in the United States under health capitalism, right? And these are a bunch of children that are like having incredible immunological changes. And we don't we don't know what is going to happen in five years, 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years. And the the way that we sort of accept the possibility of disablement as this impossibility, right? And yet we never want to look at it. We don't want to see it. We don't want it in our society. We don't want a reminder of it. The sort of mass conversation is, I think, part of the old, you know, kind of conversation around like the ugly laws in the United States. The idea that we don't want to to visually be reminded of um, things that are not normal or things that could happen to us and, you know, that are negative and bad. It's this kind of like cult of of aggressive American positivity um, towards the idea of perfect health and the perfect body and the perfect worker and the perfect society, right? And anything that doesn't fit that, we don't want to look at it so aggressively. It has to be um, removed, banned, mandated out of visual Mm. existence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, One thing that when you think about like, you know, erasure and stuff, something that like kind of just like, you know, I, I I see people with long COVID kind of sharing their stories on their own platform. Something that really yeah. kind of took me aback and I thought was really effective was this girl with, peri, per, I don't know how to pronounce it, parasemia, whatever, where you like certain foods smell like garbage and sewage mm-hmm. because the, yeah. like you've had that impact. And so she was sharing on TikTok about like the sort of impacts that she had and that how, you know, doctors, she was reading articles about how this usually reverts to normal around three months and six months, but for her, it's been 10 months and that her doctor, her doctor is like, you know, if it goes past a year, there's a really good chance that just, you have to live with this for the rest of your life. Um, And like, you know, imagine like, like that obviously has huge impacts on like your ability to keep down food, to, yeah. to obtain nutrition and the development of like eating disorders and stuff like and that. quality of life. Like not yeah, even sure. just mention like what, what yeah. your day-to-day experience of like the number one social activity, which is like eating food together. Eating food. Yeah. 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 And there's just like so much. Yeah, exactly. Like there's so much, so many things that happens when you sue this virus, like there's all sorts of like random sorts of syndromes that come about that I think, that's another way of sort of, you know, tackling this consent, <laughs> mass consent factor thing is like, um, is making sure these sort of stories get out there and like just documenting just how much 
like right. just the sort of the sheer breadth of harms that are done because like uh, like oftentimes it's just like oh you know you can you either die or you don't die right. and but then like what what's the person's quality of life right after they survive right no and it's like it's like death is sort of framed as this kind of like absolute harm that capitalism can like bear down on you right and as long as you didn't die like then you have nothing to be upset about you know what i mean mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think that you know, it also keeps us in this register of like having to have the same fight over and over again, like every 24, 48, 72 hours. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, having to have that fight over and over again is going to result in people burning the fuck out and being over arguing for it anymore. And that's, you know, that is the tactic, right? That's the strategy is to burn us out and make us give up. And, you know, there's like nothing kind of more simple and, um, uh, counterinsurgent than just wearing everyone down until they just feel powerless, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's how we that's how we manage disabled people in this country. This is how we're managing the entire population that's concerned about you know the possibly disabling effects of COVID. Yeah, um, Abdullah, thank you so much for for coming back to talk to us today. It was such a, a nice opportunity to just get to pick your brain about COVID, you know, too often we, we like, you know, invite the people like Monica Gandhi on to just not on to our show, obviously, I mean, in media in general, to just expound on like where they're at on COVID. And it's nice to hear it from, you know, someone from our side for, for a change. You should, I, I wonder like what would happen if you actually invited her to like debate um, and be like, yeah, I, I, that would be an interesting thought experience. <laughs> yeah. Like, I invited to death panel that she go on. No, but thank you. Um, I've enjoyed it. And I always, I always apologize for like going on off so much tangents. I don't know if you don't know if I make any sense or not. Oh, but, no, um, no, no, no. Yeah, it's always great. As Lauren Berlant says, there are no asides. So <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And uh, listeners, if you'd like to get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, including a really awesome interview with Deshaun L. Harrison about their book, Belly of the Beast, that came out on Tuesday of this week, then become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. And also follow Abdullah on Twitter, which is at a Shehipar, which uh, we'll put in the track description. Very as well. good follow. Very good yeah, follow. Thank you. We should probably make like a list of like the death panel approved experts. The the, the alternative. Ro- the, <laughs> a, a throwback to the blog role of old. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And um, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure, listeners. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.